0: Last week, if you were here, I spoke on the illuminating power of mindfulness, this practice of active awareness, of of engaging with our present time awareness to monitor, to look into the mind with the mind, which in neuroscience they call metacognition, which is the ability to actually observe your own thoughts and patterns and emotions sensations of the body you know and this this practice of mindfulness is engaging with our inner life and in the our in internal life and bringing you know oftentimes we're not so conscious of our motivations our intentions how we speak how we act in the world and so mindfulness really helps us to cue into that, to tune into that. I spoke in particular last week about this theme of turning obstacles into opportunities, into looking into the more distressing aspects of our thinking, into looking into mental states and emotional states that oftentimes cause a lot of distress or activation and how we can with active awareness and through being more aware of our own thoughts, feelings, and emotions, we can actually choose a different response that we can start to train the mind and train the heart. In Buddhism, there's this word chitta, which is uh, the integration of the heart and the mind. That there's no separate word for the heart and the mind. That our emotional sense and our cognitive sense, you know, what we do up here affects how we feel in here, and vice versa. And so, in particular, the Buddha encouraged us to look into the parts of our experience that Carl Jung would call the shadow side, which is the part of ourselves, of our heart and our mind that ordinarily we're not so interested in looking into. The shadow side are our protective strategies. there are defensive strategies that, you know, we have learned to keep ourselves safe. I like uh, this word that I talked about last time, this word fortification, which is the action of building a defensive wall or other reinforcement to strengthen a place against attack. And so we've developed, we fortify, we've built up these walls to protect, you know, to keep us safe. And there are many forms. I mean, these Defensive strategies in Western psychology, there are lists of them. You know, We talk about suppression and avoidance strategies, which is the tendency to push down or hold down disturbing thoughts. Uh, this is the sense that I don't want to think about it, Right, that type of defense. I don't want to think about it. Uh, there are also systems of denial, which is uh, I don't want to know. So these are about denials usually around the events or circumstances or consequences of our life. So it's almost an unwillingness to look at the reality of our lives and its full impact of our behavior. So denial is one of the strategies that I don't want to know. I don't even want to know about it. And then we have other strategies. You know, we have projection. We have rationalization. Rationalization is the explaining away or justifying a behavior avoidance of responsibility and on and on right these strategies uh, some of them are cloaked in chronic cynicism which is this kind of nihilism or the sense of distrust or hopelessness despair some of them are what we would call the inner critic or self-criticism and self-judgment which is often serving the purpose of keeping us in check. So why do I judge myself? That's a good reflection. It's kind of a a contemplative practice. Well, what purpose do these defensives serve? Because they serve a purpose. And judgment usually keeps us on track with some perceived goal. And so the Buddha calls these the sankhara, which are activities of mind. they're like programs, software programs <laughs> that we've learned and we've developed and we've you know practice we've uh, acted out and so because we practice them, they're readily available we We know how to upload the software pretty quickly, and it just happens you know, the The defenses rise up in particularly when we are when some experience is touching close to pain or our vulnerability. So there's often this sense of, you know, where we talk about woundedness or the word in Latin, vulnere, is where we get the word vulnerability, which means susceptibility to being wounded. And so in our vulnerable, most vulnerable experiences, these defenses, these activities, this sankara, these patterns or programs online. They know what to do to protect. The fortification is there you know, because it's, you know, it's been built. And so the most important thing, I think, for me to say about the defensive strategies of the mind is that they're absolutely essential for our survival, that we've done them for a reason. So they're, you know... We we really want to be careful to stray away from this sense of judging ourselves or this sense of you know adding extra criticism on top of the criticism, which just doesn't do anything helpful. And so this protection or protection in general, if we have vulnerability, which is one of the main aspects of the Buddhist teaching, is he taught that inherent in life is dukkha. And this word dukkha means... Disjointedness, that there is a sense of being susceptible to wound, woundedness, that we grow old, we get sick, that death is inevitable, that we experience praise and blame and gain and loss, and we have status and we lose status, and that these are the ups and downs of our lives, and we are vulnerable to ups and downs, and that so we seek protection. We need to form boundaries. We need to form structures of safety. And so we've done what we can to do that. And with mindfulness, we can bring wisdom into these structures of safety. We can bring clarity into how these programs manifest. We can allow our boundaries to be changeable. That these boundaries that we often form in our adolescence, our childhood, don't always serve us as we grow older. So we can start to examine this stuff. And this is what I named uh, the talk a couple weeks ago is the examined life, right? This path of the Dharma, this path of the Buddha. It's a little bit of a nod to Socrates and him saying the unexamined life is not worth living, right? So we want to examine these structures, these defenses, the fortification. So the problem with our defenses is that without active awareness, we don't often reflect on these strategies. They just happen unconsciously, often uh, repetitively, so they perpetuate. And they don't end up serving their initial purpose anymore. So this is another problem is that we tend to keep building their walls even though they're not really serving what they were initially meant to serve. What often was intended to provide security ends up creating suffering and isolation, separateness. The main problem with Defensive strategies of the heart and the mind is, you know, closing off our vulnerability or building up the walls is that often when we build our defenses around the heart, we're trapping ourselves inside the walls with the pain we're trying to protect against, right? So this is the, uh, this is the prison of being confined is that you're stuck in the cell with your pain that you're trying to protect. And so... You know, the Buddha talks about, even in some of the discourses, this self-made prison. And upon his awakening, he offered this uh, kind of exclamation of victory. He said, Through many a birth I've wandered in this world, seeking in vain the builder of this house. Unfulfilling is it to be born again and again. He says, O housemaker, now I have seen you. You shall build no more houses for me. Your beams are broken. Your ridgepole shattered. My mind is free from all past conditionings and craves the future no longer. So he has this sense of uh, breaking free from the house or the bondage of these self-made prisons that we oftentimes don't even know we're in because they often were formed through our childhood. They were often formed through our social environments. They're often formed you know, through some of the most primary woundings we experience, abandonment, shame, betrayal experiences, and so we trap ourselves in there with the wound and we can, the Buddha is saying, we can deconstruct the house. We can start to you know, shatter this box that we live in and we can, as I talked about last week, we can go forth. And this is one of the traditional phrases you hear often in the discourses that the Buddha says, I go forth from home to, into homelessness. And there's this, Interesting reflection. We want a home, right? But we take our home with us. We don't have to stay confined. So how do we start to deconstruct the walls around our hearts? And the answer, I think, is very carefully. And with time and patience and humility more than anything else, I think that the two principles that were again and again coming into contact with in buddhist practice is patience and humility this is this sense of feeling like we've arrived oh yeah you know i've done it i'm here i've been through it all and then this oh man i'm here again right how am i here again how am i doing the same thing again but this is a part of the path <clears throat> And so how, where do we start? I think the place to start is that we have to decide that if you know, we're interested in this task of living with an undefended heart, that we're interested in spiritual practice, or we're even interested in this idea. And to be interested means that two things. One, you have to believe it's possible, uh, this is why out of all of the defenses that we have in our heart and our mind this sense of nihilism or cynicism distrust or what in Buddhism we just call doubt is the most damaging of all of the hindrances of all of the defenses is because it's the only one that will talk you out of right believing in something different and so you know we want to have discernment and we want to have act we want to question things and the buddha really encouraged this question authority don't believe in the teacher don't believe in you know don't believe in the path but practice the path but in order to practice we have to have some sense that there's something worth practicing right And for many of us early on, it's just a little flicker of a light of usually out of what I talked about last week, out of desperation, we're willing to embark. Well, fuck, that didn't work, so I guess I'll do something else. (laughs) Maybe I'll go sit with the Buddhists, right? (laughs) And there's that, but you really want to pay attention to that, you know, of like what brings us here in the first place. Why am I here tonight? I could be doing so many other things on Sunday night, but I'm here. So there's something that is interested in this path. So we have to believe it to be possible. And the second very unfortunate requisite is we have to stay the course. Is that, you know, oftentimes these two other type of defenses derail us from, you know, continuing this practice of, you know... Awakening or healing or recovery. and there are many forms of these practices. Buddhism doesn't have a monopoly on this, but you know we have to stay put and try it on and try it out. And one of the things that happens is this tendency towards laziness or this tendency of avoidance or rationalization gets in the way. I'll do it later, there's other things going on, or I just don't you know need to do it right now, or I don't want to go sit with it. Every time my therapy appointment rolls around, I want to cancel. Every time I think I have to go sit in front of this dude for an hour. My therapist, my therapy experiences can be very brutal. Let me just say that. You know, and I I have this sense of, you know, unfortunately I pay the dude 150 bucks, right? So I (laughs) I have to go. So we need accountability to stay the course. You know, we need support. And this other, you know, laziness, avoidance, rationalization, the other end of this that usually dislodges us is unrealistic expectations. You know, this sense of, uh, or also sometimes putting ourselves too far in to do the work too fast. The sense of, you know, I'm going to bear down and I'm going to just, you know, get a backhoe into the heart and uncover all the shit that's been on top. And then we get overwhelmed with what we find. So, you know, we we have to decide that we're interested in this, and then we practice bringing active awareness to our defenses. We start to bring active awareness to our present experience, and we start to look in and we say, you know, what's here? What is it? How is it? What's the effect of what's here? And what does it need? What's the wise response for what's here? We bring active awareness, and we're interested in that. And this is the practice of uh, contemplation. Buddhism is a contemplative practice. So contemplative just means basically... It stems from not the word contemplation, but in Buddhism we practice meditation. But what this stems from is this word anupasati, which means to repeatedly look at. So you're continuing to hold in mind or repeatedly look at certain parts of your life. And one of the things we look at primarily... In the Buddhist path of practice is this idea of harm or harmfulness. What what cause what is the cause of harm? And how do we live a life of non-harm? This is one of the core tenets or ethical principles of a, you know the Buddhist practice. Harm can take on different forms, so it's important to look at the variety of what this would mean. Harm could be through thought harmful thoughts. By harmful we mean not moral, not good or bad thoughts, but we mean skillful or unskillful, helpful or unhelpful thoughts. Thoughts that lead to distress, to dysregulation, to activation, to suffering. Thoughts that lead to ease, that lead to contentment, that lead to our well-being. So thoughts, uh, harm of speech, you know, how we interact, how we engage in the relational sense. I don't know if you've noticed, but most of the harm I've experienced in my life usually involves other people. Right? A lot of the pain I've experienced has been in the relational sense. And then harm through, you know, our speech and harm through our direct act- action, our behavior. Harm is also to myself harm to others, harm through my participation in larger systems and structures. So part of the humility of Buddhist practice is realizing that we're born into a world, into an existence that has harm as one of its threads. That we're a part of bigger systems and structures that perpetuate harm. We have to engage in money. You know, we have to engage in uh, you know, our society. and We have to engage in you know, we're kind of signed up for things that we feel we weren't really wanting to sign up for. And then harm, probably the most subtle and difficult to notice is harm through omission, which is absence of action. You know, how we, for ourselves and others, generate harm by not doing, not thinking enough about, not speaking enough about, not doing enough about. You know, the hurt, the pain of harm that we experience is often met with two defenses, you know, two initial activities. One is the tendency for avoidance. So this is this passive sense of pushing it down or internalizing it. You know, this is where oftentimes when we push down or avoid Harm that's been done to ourselves or others where our regrets manifest into shame or when the harm that we experience manifests into shame and they get internalized. Self-hatred or a sense of separateness. Harm is also often met with uh, this tendency towards seeking retribution or this active resentment, blame, revenge seeking. You know, I'm going to eye for an eye get even. And the retribution can be really tricky because it can also be very passive. So there's this kind of combination of both the passive and active sense, aggression towards ourselves and others out of the context of how the harm was initially caused. So we kind of, you know, silently seek retribution and we're not really aware of that because it's not any longer connected to the thing that was said or done. Resentment. Resentment means to refuel, tear, to refeel, to re-emerge. You know, when you think of that thing, it comes packaged with emotion, anger, and it's fuel. This word naroda or the ceasing of reactivity, this word naroda is similar to what we would call nirvana, nibbana, which actually means the cooling down. So it's when the fire, or the flame goes out. When that resentment or hatred doesn't fuel the heart or the, you know, it doesn't fuel the retribution anymore, that need to seek revenge. So all of these forms of avoidance and retribution are fortifications that keep us walled in, again, with this pain that's caused. And what I want to speak to tonight and practice together is working on this practice of forgiveness. And with forgiveness, we look at three different forms of harm. We look at ways that we've harmed others. So what are all the ways through thought, speech, and action, all of these different forms that we're talking about? What are the ways that I've harmed others? And then the second form is the ways that I've caused harm to myself. And the third is the ways others have harmed us. And we work directly with these three categories, how I've caused harm to others, how I've harmed myself, and how uh, others have harmed me. And so the important thing when approaching the practice of forgiveness is to pick up the 10-pound weights first. When we're looking at harm and ways that we have been harmed especially, you want to start by really easing yourself into the practice of forgiveness, is that you don't go straight, like when you go to the gym, you don't go and pick up the hundred-pound weight and say, "All right, I'm gonna do this right now." I haven't worked out in years, right? Yeah. You start, you know, you start with the the parts of our lives that have hurt us, where we've hurt ourselves, where we've hurt others that are manageable, and then we understand that why do I want to practice forgiveness? And this theme of forgiveness is letting go of the prison of our past. That resentments, that this fuel of anger and hatred keeps us bonded to our past. And Jack Kornfield, meditation teacher, says that forgiveness is giving up any hope for a better past. Right? And some important things to know here, that with forgiveness, one, some actions are unforgivable, that we're not being asked to bring this practice of forgiveness into things that people have said or done. Understanding that harm is born instead out of suffering and confusion, we seek to forgive the actor, not the action. We seek to understand that even if we can't comprehend why would anyone do this, That there must have been such an immense amount of suffering and confusion and maybe just even ignorance, complete unknowingness in this mind and body of this person or in myself, that I understand that hatred is born out of suffering and ignorance, not knowing, not seeing clearly, a lack of wisdom. And so we're not looking to forgive the actions, but instead the actor's. And letting someone, we can practice letting someone back into our heart without letting them back into our home. Right? That forgiveness isn't a, okay, fine, opening myself back up to the harm or to being re-exposed to some you know, abuse or some type of relationship that's going to continue to perpetuate. But rather it's the opposite. It's setting the limit. It's holding a firm boundary it's seeing that clearly in that we work to let people back into our heart. Again, starting with the 10-pound weight, starting with the people that are easier to work with. I want to read this real quick about this letting people back into our hearts. This is uh, Noah's book, Heart of the Revolution. He says, This is perhaps the most essential perspective in forgiveness, the separation of the actor from action. Whether the harm that requires forgiveness was an unskillful act we carried out that hurt someone else, or an unskillful act on the part of another that we felt victimized by, we must see that the action and the actor are not the same thing. Most of the time, the anger and resentment we hold are directed against the actor. In our minds, we don't instinctively separate the abuser from the abuse. But this is exactly what we must do. We must come to understand that confusion comes and goes. An action from a confused and suffering being in the past doesn't represent who that being is forever. It is only an expression of that being suffering. Furthermore, if we cling to a resentment over past hurts, we simply increase our own suffering. By holding on to our anger and resentments, we make our own lives more difficult than they need to be. And so letting someone back into our heart without letting them back into our homes, you know, and forgiving the actor, not the action. And this third important aspect of forgiveness is that it's a lifelong practice. It's not a one-time event. Sometimes we mistakenly think that, oh, I've forgiven that person, like it's an event. We we'd use the same sense with the the. You know, unfortunate phrase of letting it go. You need to let that go, like it's a thing that you can do. And so we oftentimes just get frustrated because, like, well, I want to fucking let that go, but I can't let it go because it keeps coming up. But letting go is actually a skill. It's a practice, and it's usually you don't let it go until you let it in. And so there's a sense of understanding that needs to happen before the letting go understanding the harm and suffering that I caused others, understanding the harm and suffering that was caused to me, and letting that pain in to care for it, to be able to let it go. And so we start with the ways that we have harmed others. Uh, I am uh, been in 12-step recovery for several years, and I think, for me, this is one of the most beautiful aspects of the twelve steps is the emphasis on making amends. In particular, there are these two steps where they talk about we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. So there's a sense of anupasati, repeatedly looking at, contemplating the harm that we have caused to others. So you actually sit down and you make a list. You got to bring that into mind. This is probably one of the hardest parts of the Buddhist path of practice, is to actually sit down and to do the work, to, to bring to mind the things we don't want to really do. So to make the list of all the people we have harmed, and then to make direct amends, this is the other part of uh, this process of amends in 12 step to make direct amends whenever possible. It says, except when to do so would injure yourself or others. And this is, a, I think, a really beautiful practice, is to actually seek out others and to engage in the practice of asking for forgiveness that i understand how i have hurt you i understand and see you know that i have caused you harm and i'm asking for your forgiveness there's a huge emphasis here on what the buddha would encourage two things that help us to bring wisdom into Our lives, and in this case into forgiveness practice. Two things that are needed to make sure this is a wise process of men's. And this is uh, thoughtful consideration. So we actually have to sit down and think about it and write it and make the list. And we have to kind of reflect on what we're going to do and say. And the words of a wise friend. We need support and we need accountability in this practice. That oftentimes what happens is instead of, Asking for forgiveness, what we do is we are trying to alleviate the guilt that we feel from that activity more so than amend the behavior, behavior. And so what we want to do is when we make a commitment to make the amends, we are making a commitment to never engage in the behavior again. And knowing that we may fail at that, but that's our aspiration. As we're setting a high bar, I will not do this anymore and that's why I'm asking for forgiveness. And so we have to be willing and ready and we have to have thoughtful consideration and support. The words of a wise friend, two things that the Buddha encouraged. And then we want to work to mend the wound. So part of amends is is seeking to mend the wound. And this is, although I cannot change the past and what I did, I wish to mend the harm caused by being open to any ways that I can do some action today that can help to heal the wound. So I'm not saying I can fix what happened, but I want to let you know that I am open to doing what I can today to help to heal this wound. That's making the amends. You know, we can look and reflect at the end of our day. This can become, you know, mindfulness practice. It's like, okay, it's the end of the day. How, in what ways have I maybe been unskillful or harmful towards others in my life today? What are some of the things that I kind of regret? The Buddha said that regret is a healthy, protective emotion. The sense of, oh man, that didn't feel good. Regret is actually based in compassion. If you really pay attention, when you, because you have regret, that's a very important emotion. Oh, that didn't feel good. You know. And so we connect with that and we say, oh, that's an opportunity to mend that. You know, there's an opportunity to say, oh, that didn't feel like it was in line with how I'm trying to live today. I want to do something to mend that. And then, you know, the forgiveness practice itself, you know, around uh, ways we have harmed others. And I want to go over this. We'll do this together. So I'm going to jump ahead to uh, ways we harmed ourselves. For some of us, way, self harm, ways we've hurt ourselves will be obvious. And we can look over the past year and say, oh, yep, that, didn't, that wasn't good, that didn't work out, that was harmful. For some of us, we have striking examples in our lives, and it's easy to kind of say, yep, yeah, definite harm to myself. Regularly, I see it, it's there. For many of us, and I would actually say most of us, this is probably one of the most challenging reflections. Because the way we harmed ourselves are often subtle, they're often progressive, meaning they build with time, and they can often even be disguised as self-compassion, ways that in the present we think that we're taking care of ourselves, but often, you know, are engaging in behaviors and activities that are short term bringing ease but long term bringing pain you know so you know the, again this is a reflection ways we have been harmed by others this is in particular where we're talking about the 10 pound weight when we are looking at harm that others have caused us we really want to start with you know picking someone that we still have a relationship with someone that we love and care about deeply that may have said something or done something that wasn't very kind or skillful and we pick up that person, we practice with them. And so I want to mostly talk about th- this practice of how can we develop this through a meditation practice. How can we train the mind in this skill? It's a skill of forgiveness. It's, a, it's actually a quality of heart. It's a capability of the mind to open to this possibility of forgiving others, asking for forgiveness from others, and forgiving ourselves. And so what I want to do is just kind of uh, do some practice together for a little bit of time. If you need to use the restroom or stretch, give yourself a couple minutes, and uh, we'll get started just here in a couple minutes.